You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. My name is Jamin. If you're new here, I'm one of the pastors at Citizens Church. We're so thrilled uh, that you chose to worship with us uh, this morning. If you're watching online, uh, welcome from wherever you are. We're glad that you are participating with us. We're going to be in uh, a lot of different passages this morning. And so if you'd like to turn to, you could turn to Luke chapter 2, or you could turn to Philippians 4, or you could turn to Colossians 3. If, just take your pick this morning, turn to one of those, and we'll get to each of them. Uh, this is our third Sunday in Advent, and what we're doing during this Advent season is we are considering the promises of God, the vows that God has made, the pledges He's made, uh, that as those promises settle and root in our hearts, we are more faithfully able to live in the true story. Advent, uh, as you've been told already this morning, is a Latin word that means arrival. And what we believe to be true right now is that we are living in between the two advents of King Jesus, that in the past, uh, God sent his son to rescue and redeem and to bring his kingdom, which is the world that this world was waiting for. He lived a perfect life. He died in my place and your place for our sin. He rose again in victory over sin and death. And right now, he's the death-defeating Lord of heaven and earth who rules and reigns at the Father's right hand and intercedes for you and for me, which is really good news. Uh, we also look forward to the second advent of Jesus, which is when he returns and he brings perfect peace and justice and righteousness, and as he uh, rids the world of all evil and he welcomes in an eternity of uninterrupted joy and peace as we get to live and exist with God, Father, Son, and Spirit forever and ever. And we live in between those two events. And for centuries, we didn't make this up, it's not a citizen's church thing. For centuries, the church has gathered during this time of the year, has taken the several weeks leading up to Christmas to specifically remember that we live in between the two advents of Jesus. And so the lights and the trees and the songs and the sermons, none of that is about getting in the holiday spirit, although that's fun. It's about learning to live more fully and freely in the true story of the world. And the way that we're trying to do that is by considering the promises of God that help root us in that story. So the first Sunday of Advent, we looked at the promise of God's presence, that God is with us. Last week, we looked at the promise of God's sight, that he sees us, he sees you. This morning, we look at the promise of God's peace, which means you and I are going to be okay. I love coffee. I tell you that a lot. And by coffee, I mean I love good coffee. I love craft coffee. I'm at a point in my relationship with coffee that I only buy certain kind of coffee from a certain coffee roaster that roasts beans from a certain region in South America. The more I talk about it, the more ridiculous it sounds because it's, it's ridiculous, but it's uh, who I am. Usually I get the coffee in the mail, but a couple months ago I ran out and I didn't want to wait for it to ship. And so I looked up the roaster that I buy the beans from and it was about 30 minutes away, 40 minutes away in North Dallas, and I decided I'm just going to drive down to the, the store and buy a bag of beans uh, from the store. And so I get there, I pulled up, and there are no cars in the parking lot. And I thought, man, I really hope they're not closed. So I just did a quick Google search, and it said, currently open. I said, great, got out of my car. I'm walking up to the store, and I see all the lights inside are off. And I thought, man, I really hope they're not closed. And so I just pulled up their website, standing in the parking lot, looked at their hours, and it said that they were open. I was in between those hours. And I got up to the store, and I pulled on the door, and it was locked. And right next to the locked door is an open sign that's lit that says it's open. 
And I got really frustrated, more frustrated than I should, because that's what addiction does to you, right? But um, <laughs> what I was being told, we all know a moment like that, right, in life, as trite as that is. What I was being told was that they were open, but what I was experiencing was that they were closed. What I was reading on their website and on their door was very different than what I was seeing with my own eyes. Everything about what I read said it's open, but, but where I was standing, I was standing in front of a store that was very clearly closed. If you pay attention to the stories and scriptures about Jesus' birth, especially the scriptures that are really uh, familiar around this time of year, there is a word and a promise that you cannot ignore if you read it with clarity, and that's the promise of peace. Rachel read two of the more well-known verses about Jesus' birth. In Isaiah 9, his birth is prophesied, and he says when he comes, he's going to be a wonderful counselor, an everlasting father, a mighty God, and he will be a prince of peace. That's the promise. That's who he is. In Luke chapter 2, his birth is announced by the angels to the shepherds, and they sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. So God gets glory and earth gets peace. And then it's not just something that's about Jesus' birth. It's not just the, the Christmas passages. It's carried throughout the New Testament. In John 14, Jesus promises to his disciples, peace I leave with you, peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let them not be afraid. So Jesus says to his disciples, there's something I have that the world doesn't. And the very thing I have that the world doesn't, I'm giving to you, it's peace. After Jesus dies and comes back to life in John 20, 19 through 21, this is the first conversation he has with his disciples. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Jesus had been betrayed by every man in that room. He dies, he comes back to life, and what's his first word to them? Peace. What's his second word to them? Peace. He repeats peace to them. Then if you keep going in the story, Jesus' disciples who write the rest of the New Testament, they carry on this promise. In Colossians 3.15, it says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Philippians 4.7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Galatians 5 says that peace is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. Patience. Matthew chapter 5 says that being a peacemaker is part of what it means to have the character of the kingdom. It's a beatitude. So all the way back to Isaiah, when Jesus is prophesied, it said one is coming, he's going to be the prince of peace. And then the angels sing peace on earth. And then Jesus says, peace I give you. And the resurrected peace be with you. And the God of peace comforts you. And the peace of Christ rule you. And then even peace will come out of you. It's a promise. How does that sit with you right now? Um, the promise of peace, how real does that promise seem to you? What I imagine is for many, those verses can feel a bit like an open sign on a closed store. Like what I'm reading is not what I'm seeing and experiencing. It says peace, but where I'm standing, everything looks pretty closed. Where I'm standing, it's conflict and chaos. I have a friend who really struggling with his faith, and he got to the core of his doubt, and it came out of his mouth like this. I was promised the peace that surpasses understanding, and it never came. I was told there's peace here, but it feels like the lights are off and the door is locked. 
I wonder where that lands on you. Like, by now, everyone is aware of what's going on right now in our world and just the daunting mental health crisis that we're in and the rising statistics of depression and anxiety, and maybe you fall in there somewhere, and you'd say, I see in God's Word that peace is promised, but where I'm standing is I'm standing in the middle of a battle with my mind, and I feel like I'm losing. Like, every day's haunted by what if and this sense of dread and this sadness. Or, Or maybe there's a lot of relational conflict in your life right now. Maybe your marriage is in a really tough spot. There's not a lot of peace in your home. Maybe something with your children or a child is really difficult. Or maybe there's a shattered relationship, and you don't really think of it a lot, but you think about it a lot this time of year because you and someone you love should be able to do Christmas together, but you can't. And you'd say, I see in God's Word that peace is promised, but I'm standing in relational wreckage, and there's just no quick fix to it, or even just on a large scale. Like as a, as a, as a harmonizer, as somebody who, who doesn't love conflict, the things that we fight about culturally, the things that are going on right now is just so discouraging. Like public discourse is so uncharitable, and it feels like the only kind of unity that you can find is the unity that says the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Like I, I really… It, there's nowhere where it's as bad as, on, as, as it is on Twitter. I really only get on Twitter to check out what's happening with the Dallas Mavericks, specifically to see if they've made a trade to get Lucas some help. Um, <laughs> if you don't know what that means, it's really important, so we should talk about it later. Um, but the moment that I start scrolling, it takes no time at all to be reminded how much people hate each other. It takes no time at all to be reminded how much some Christians hate each other. Christians. Like those who claim Christ, those who have a shared hope in His shed blood and can't reach into all that shared grace and find a way to speak to one another like humans, much less like blood-bought brothers and sisters. And so it'd be easy to just look around, right, and say, I see God's Word says peace on earth, but maybe I'm standing on the wrong earth because I don't see a lot of it, right? Maybe for you it's sickness, and it's a sickness that you're battling right now, and God's Word promises peace, but your body is filled with pain, and peace is hard to find when you're hurting. Or maybe there's a loss that marks your life, death or mourning or something sad, and God's Word promises peace, but you're crumbled in grief, and peace is hard to see through your tears. It is. Did God lie? Prince of peace, peace on earth, the peace of Christ rule your heart. What I read feels a lot different than what I'm seeing. Is it an empty promise from God? Is it a broken promise? My answer is no. No. God didn't lie. Peace is real. The promise is true. He's not a liar. I want to offer three truths about peace that I think might help us in some of that dissonance. Three truths that many are, for many of you will be reminders, but, but hopefully what they do is help us make sense of the gap between what we read and what we see. And if God would even be so kind, what might happen this morning is that God could allow some of his peace to settle on some of our anxious hearts, especially those of us who are finding peace hard to find. Three truths to consider. The story of peace, the source of peace, and the steps of peace. The story of peace, the source of peace, and the steps of peace. Three points They all start with the same letter. I don't think that's ever been done before in church, so this is incredible. Uh, I added something to my notes right before the 9 a.m. service that I want to share with you. Um, And maybe it's unnecessary, but but it felt right. It's, It's a bit of a disclaimer. I didn't necessarily intend for things to come together this way. But uh, in my time in God's Word this week, and just considering my own heart before God and my own struggle as a fellow Christian with you, 
trying to find grace and understanding. Uh, these three points came together in a way that mostly invites you to consider you and mostly invites us to consider our own hearts. What I mean by that is they are a bit targeted in that you might feel a bit challenged. I know I feel challenged, and I'm afraid that that could come off as if you don't feel peace at all, it's all your fault. And I don't mean it that way. I really don't. That's not my heart. That certainly isn't God's heart. So I just want to submit to you that the rest of this is just offering things that I think are worth considering. I think there's work for a lot of us to do. I think for many of us, some of our distance from peace might be a bit self-inflicted. And so it's good work. It's difficult. Uh, and there are things that I offer in love for you to consider. And, and if it lands as true for you, great. If not, the good news is the choir comes back up in just a few minutes, which is great. Well, like 35 minutes, so get ready. Uh, the story of peace. In Luke chapter 2, the same angels that sing peace on earth are not just singing about the earth that will be. They're singing about the earth that was, the earth that they knew. There's a Hebrew word for peace, and it's the word shalom. It's not just the absence of conflict. Shalom is the presence of wholeness and completeness and, and rightness. And, and if you were to describe the way that God originally made his world, if you were to describe the Genesis 1 world and you only had one word, the best word to use would be shalom, that it was peace, absence of conflict, presence of wholeness. The reason that the idea of peace is so attractive, the reason that there's a general human desire for and longing for peace is because something of that shalom world resides in all of our hearts. At least it resides in the longing of all of our hearts. That sense that we share, all of us, the sense that we share that things are not the way that they are supposed to be, what we're doing when we say that is we are holding this world to the standard of peace, which is the original state that it was made in. It's where the story of peace begins when God created. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've been in church for any length of time, you know the next thing I have to say is what happened to that peace is that the Genesis 1 peace was disrupted by the Genesis 3 fall. Sin enters the world. Peace is first and foremost about having a right relationship with God. Peace is first and foremost about creation being in right relationship with creator. And so when Adam and Eve listen to their own wisdom, when Adam and Eve reject God's voice and try to live in their world, in God's world in their way, it introduces chaos into the world. Uh, that was the sin of the garden. Every absence of peace that we experience now originated in that initial act and has been perpetuated by every human who's ever existed, including me and including you. And it is into, so it's peace established and then peace lost, and it's into that story that God sends his son Jesus to restore peace, that God sends Jesus as a savior, and the solution, his solution to the chaos is to establish a kingdom of peace. That's what it's called. Romans 14, 17 says the kingdom is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus does is Jesus invites those who are in the chaotic kingdom to come into the kingdom of peace, to become citizens of the kingdom through his blood, that he might uh, transform chaos makers like me and you into peacemakers like who he is. And he does that by writing our relationship with God. Romans 5.1 says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What that means, friend, is it means you're completely loved and forgiven if you trust in Jesus. 
if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of him, everything that we said last week, that he sees all of you outside of the frame of your life where no one else can see, outside of the place in which we try to control perception and manage even our own imperfections so people think more highly of us than we actually are. God doesn't play that game. He sees outside all of that, right? The, the, the things that we work so hard to keep hidden are the very things that God sees. And none of our mechanisms for dressing ourselves up uh, or none of our mechanisms for, for covering over our own mess, they work before a holy God. And yet the good news of the gospel is that God looks and loves. He sees and he saves because he sees through the lens of his son, Jesus, so that we might be both clearly seen and unconditionally loved at the same time, justified by faith, peace with God. And that kingdom of peace that you've been welcomed into, it's been established by Jesus. You've been welcomed in as a citizen and a saint and a son and a daughter, peace with God, peace with King Jesus. That's the story of peace. It's where we find ourselves in that story right now. It was peace established, peace lost. Jesus has begun the project of restoring peace by establishing the kingdom of peace. Now, what's true about that story? And what's true about that kingdom? It's begun, but it's not completed. Please stay with me. The story ends with a perfected kingdom in perfect, unadulterated peace forever and ever and ever. The peace of the garden returns when the new city comes, the new Jerusalem, heaven and earth reunited. Are we at the end of that story? No. Where are we in that story? We're in between. That's what Advent is about. It's looking back and looking forward and knowing that there's a lot that we're still waiting for. And our experience of peace right now has to be seen in the context of that story and where we are in that story. Hear me. Because the same Bible and the same God that promises peace also promises that life right now as we wait for the kingdom to come in full is difficult. It's painful. It's filled with difficulty. Here are some promises that Jesus makes. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. It's John 15. A chapter later in John 16, Jesus says, you will have suffering in the world. He promises that. You will have suffering in the world. Life will be hard. Not some of you might suffer a little bit. Not some things might get uncomfortable. You, Christian, will have suffering in the world. Mark 10, Jesus says, I've not come to bring peace, but a sword that divides. Now, he's not contradicting himself. He's saying not everyone will respond to him the same. And because he's so polarizing, the differing responses to Jesus will cause division. Here's a promise the Bible makes. There is a very real evil and a very real enemy that wants to steal from you, kill, and destroy you. Merry Christmas, right? That's a promise in the Bible that, that is made to us. The Bible, here's my point. The Bible that promises peace also paints a realistic picture of life filled with difficulty. When will evil be gone for good? When Jesus returns. When is suffering gone and a broken world is perfected? When Jesus returns. When does the kingdom of peace cover the earth forever and ever? Well, not until Jesus returns. And so I said all that to say this. We're at a place in redemptive history where according to God, according to what he says about himself and what he tries to prepare us to live in, we're at a place where peace and pain stand together, at least for now. 
And God told us it would be like that. The, the promise of peace does not make the pain and chaos less real. I'm not saying for some sort of, you know, spiritual hyper-optimism or something like that. But the presence of pain does not negate the promise of peace. The same God who promises peace also prepares us that life's going to be chaotic and it's going to be difficult. So the story of peace and our um, understanding of an expectation of God fulfilling the promise has to make space for that tension. Here's what I wonder. I wonder if some of why we feel the distance between promise and reality, I wonder if it's because we are holding God responsible for the promises the world around us makes, but that God has never made. I wonder if we have confused, hear me, I wonder if we have confused the promise of peace with the promise of ease. The message we hear every day is that you can build the life you want, right? That promise is all, the promise of ease surrounds us. You know, if you watch any TV today, somebody's going to promise you some sort of comfort, some sort of thing that can bring this amount of leisure or safety or protection or satisfaction in your life that'll stave the pain and difficulty away from your life. God does not promise those things. Everything about the surrounding story promises that there's a path that you can walk and invites all of us to walk this path of, of, of a pain-free, perfected life. And so it goes like this. You just get the good degree from the good school, and then you get the good job, and then marriage is thrown in the mix somewhere, and you do the first house, right? And then you get the good promotion, and so you have kids, and then you get the second house, and after that becomes a better job or a bigger promotion, and there's more kids. And the expectation along the way is that the more that we accomplish and the more that we achieve, the less pain and difficulty and challenge and resistance there is in our life. And that story makes no room for suffering in life, makes no room for the most painful. It makes no room for a marriage that's barely hanging on. It makes no room for the fact that most of us parents have no idea what we're doing. It makes no room for the, the things in life that just happen in a moment and break your heart, right? And what can happen is, is any amount of resistance or when that plan starts falling apart, we can turn it into accusation against God. But it's not a promise he ever made. Or, or we assume something must be wrong. How this works in, in my life, if I can offer some transparency, what I'm guilty of is I have this fundamental belief in me, I don't know where it came from, but I have this fundamental belief in me that if things are not going well, it means that I'm doing something wrong. If there's crisis or challenge or criticism or chaos of any kind at the church, home, and life, it must mean that there was something I was supposed to do that I didn't do, or there's something I did do that I should not have done, and there's a lie underneath that. That, that sounds like, oh, poor guy, right? But there's a lie underneath that that's subtle, but it's insidious. And I was talking to my counselor about it, and I listed all these things that were pain points in my life or that I thought would be different in my life and, 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 and difficult in my life and challenging in my life. And I just asked him, I said, man, what am I, what am I doing wrong? And it's a fair question. I'm a sinner, and uh, I'm in need of more sanctification, and, and it would have been fine to talk about my idols and my sins and all that, but instead he asked me to consider something. He said, what if it's not that you're doing something wrong? What if it's that you're doing a lot right, and yet you wrongly believed that doing what's right means life would be easy? Maybe you need to make space in your heart for you to be doing the right things and life to still be difficult. I hate counseling. I just hate it. <laughs> Here's the lie I believe that 
that was exposed in that rebuke. As much as I know in my head that sin is real and evil is present and the world is still broken, I believe in my heart that I can perfect my world. That's what I believe. I believe I can perfect my world. And if I haven't yet perfected my world, and by perfected I mean it's got everything I want and nothing that I don't, then something must be wrong. Theologians have a word for this. It's called an over-realized eschatology. And what it means is it's when we expect the reality of the kingdom before the return of the king. And where that trips us up in terms of peace is the more we expect life to be perfect before it has been perfected, the further that peace will feel from us. Almost two years ago, Tim Keller was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Pray for him. He's very sick, and uh, he means a whole lot to a whole lot of us. Uh, I don't know him personally. I've just been, I've benefited so much from his ministry. In March of this year, he wrote an article that was published in The Atlantic, and the article was all about his diagnosis and facing death, and he's about a year into his uh, diagnosis at that point. Um, It's out there. I'd encourage you to read it. It's beautiful. A friend sent me this line from the article this week. Keller is at a point in the article where he's explaining what it's been like to face death and to come to grips with his mortality and to be honest before God, and he says this about the surprising comfort he and his wife Kathy found. He says, to our surprise and encouragement, Kathy and I have discovered that the less we attempt to make this world into a heaven, the more we're able to enjoy it. The less we attempt to make this world into a heaven, the more we're able to enjoy it. You hear the wisdom, Fred. You hear the wisdom in that. I think so much of the experience of the peace of God now, in real time now, in the present now, is not expecting earth to be heaven and then being surprised and overjoyed when we find a little bit of it now because God promises a little bit of it now. The less we hold this world to the standard of a perfected world, the more peace we find in it, even among the imperfections. And we only look for that. We only discipline our hearts to hold pain and peace together at the same time. If we remember the story, we reject the false stories and trust God at his word. Like one of the promises of God is that he uses the painful things and the difficult things to shape us. It's all over his scripture. And if we know the story of peace and if we can hold peace and pain together, what if some of the most difficult things in your life right now are not evidence that God is lying, but evidence that God is working and he cares about you and he's creating something in you? That's the story of peace, the source of peace. Colossians 3.15 says this, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body and be thankful. Philippians 4, 7, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Whose peace is it? There's a possessive in there. And who possesses the peace? God. The peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The peace of God will guard you. So there's this expectation, or it's easy to think that if the peace of God is real, then I will experience that as some sort of existential emotional reality that the climate of my heart is always bliss or always calm. I think that can happen for a Christian at times. I don't think it's forever for a Christian. But what the Bible presents is that it's actually not us. The source of the peace is not in us, and and the place of, of peace is not even us, but it's God. It's His peace. And if that's true, both of these verses give us a way to access that peace, and it says you access it through surrender. Last year, I went to D.C. with my family and. We were there just as the cherry trees were beginning to blossom. 
Like, if you've ever seen a picture of the Washington Monument or something like that, or the, the mall is what they call it, um, if you ever see a picture of it in late spring, it's, it's lined with these beautiful flowering pink trees. Have you seen that? They're cherry trees, and they're, they're beautiful. And we were there, and I thought, uh, I want one. Um, so I cut one down. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> in the last few years, I've gotten into landscaping and kind of taking care of my yard. So if you're paying attention, my hobbies are coffee and yard work. It's wild. It's a wild life. And um, I did some research, and it turns out that they don't grow well in the soil here, at least where I live. And um, it's not compatible. The soil is clay. It's harder, and it's not compatible with what uh, a cherry tree needs to grow. And so I went to a local tree store, and I asked a tree expert. (laughs) That sounds so um, something. Uh, And... (laughs) I asked him, I said, is there a way to grow a cherry tree in my backyard? I live kind of in central Plano. And he said, maybe. Um, Really, the only chance would be to dig out the hard clay soil in the area where you wanted to put the tree and then bring in soil you have to get from somewhere else and put that in the ground. And that's the kind of soil that the tree could actually grow in. So basically, replaced the ground that is there with brand new ground. And I said, man, that sounds like a ton of work. And he just laughed at me, which I thought was unprofessional. But um, (laughs) I left thinking, well, spoiler alert, there's not a cherry tree in our yard. It just felt like too much, right? I, I wanted the tree. I really did. But that meant replacing the soil. And I didn't want to do that work. Colossians says the peace of Christ rules your heart. Philippians says it will guard. It's language of control. You submit to his peace. And what it means is this, is that peace in our life grows in the soil of surrender as Jesus rules and guards and as we give our lives to him and as we trust him. And you know this, the soil of surrender is not the soil that is natural to the region of the human heart. The soil of my heart and your heart, the ground is control, it's self-protection, it's overconfidence in ourselves. And what can happen, I think, for so many of us is that we want the peace to grow in our life, but we don't want to put in the work to replace the soil. I want to tease that out. Before I do, I need to say something. I want to be careful because I know many of you and then many that I don't know, um, some of my brothers and sisters in the room, you've been listening through the lens of your own suffering that you have going on right now, like maybe a kind of depression or a kind of anxiety is part of your story and and you're in it right now and it's a kind of depression and a kind of anxiety that you're not just like one Bible verse away from that going away. And and for you, you've done the work and you're seeking Jesus and it's slow growth and God sees you in that. I, I prayed with a brother last Sunday after service. He's a friend and he's been a friend for years He's a godly man, and last Sunday we walked from that spot right there over into my office over there, and me and a couple other elders sat with him and cried with him and prayed with him because right now his mind is filled with all kinds of dark thoughts. He's clinically depressed, and and it's not lack of obedience, and it's not lack of faith. It's not lack of trust or trying. He's done everything right, and he still is where he is, and what he needs is he needs a comforter. He needs healing. He needs uh, God's supernatural peace to disrupt. And I know for many others in the room, that's your story. And here's what I don't want you to hear in these next few moments. There's things I need to say because I think they will edify the body and benefit in ways. But I don't want you to hear me saying, if you just had a little more faith, 
or a little more surrender, all your problems will go away. Your fight for peace, if that's you, is simply more complex than that. And as a pastor and as a human, I simply need you to know that, that I know that. But for many of us, where that kind of mental suffering is not part of our story or that degree of mental suffering is not part of our story, I think what God would have us consider is that maybe what's happening is we want peace to grow, but we don't want to cultivate in our heart the soil of surrender. So maybe consider this, that God says he will supply all of your needs. And he says he, he causes all things to work together for good. And so let the soil settle in your heart and you can surrender your worry and you can surrender control of your life and you can surrender your plans and, and, and you need to do the work that digs in the dirt of your own life and find the ground where we hold tightly to our plans and dig around and, and find the ground where we are attempting to do God's job. And that's the kind of work needed for peace to grow in our life because it grows in the soil of surrender and some of us are expecting it to grow in the soil of self-reliance. It won't. Let the peace of Christ rule. Or maybe what God would have some consider is that there's someone who's sinned against you, someone who's wronged you. God saw that. We talked about that last week, that, that Jesus sees it, that he says, I'll handle it, I'll heal all of your wounds. And what's true is that all sin will be dealt with. It's either covered in the cross of Christ or it's confronted in the return of Christ. And so in that, Jesus sees, and you can entrust your justice to him. And, and, and there's space in that for boundaries. There is space in that for consequences. I don't think God is asking anyone to make it easy for someone to sin against them. That's not loving for them and it's not loving for you. But what he is saying is his justice can settle in the soil of your heart so that you can offer love and you can offer kindness and you can even offer forgiveness if it's sought and dig out all the things that would hold a grudge and do the work to dig out the ground where hurt could become hatred. But often what happens is in our hurt, we resist that. Because when we are hurt, one of the things that we have felt is a loss of control. And one of the false ways that we try to recapture that control is by holding people's sins against them in our heart, by punishing them, even if just in our mind of, of, of imagining the ways to get back at them, which just continues the cycle of chaos. You cannot hold a grudge and have peace at the same time. We wonder why peace won't grow, some of us. Well, it grows in the soil of surrender, and some of us are expecting it to grow in the soil of bitterness and hate. Let the peace of Christ rule. Surrender to it. Do the work of digging around in the dirt of your life, finding those things and offering them to God. What God might have some of us consider is that in King Jesus, we've been given a brand new identity. It's such good news. You, you are who God in Christ says that you are. You're not defined by your worst moment. Your value is held in his hands, secured in the blood that he shed for you, in this new value that he speaks over you that you are his. And what that means is if the soil of our identity in Christ it settles in our heart, then we can handle not being loved by everyone. We can handle rejection. It's not easy, but it's not earth-shattering. But what happens for many of us is what we really want is we most want to be impressive to the people that we're impressed with. And I have all these insecurities and, and I take them, instead of taking them to the Savior in whom I'm secure, I try and find value in what I achieve. Or I try and find value by garnering the compliments and attention and approval of others. And you know what happens out of that soil in your heart? You and I become easily offendable because a fragile identity cannot handle being misunderstood a fragile identity can't handle being left out. A fragile identity can't handle being slighted or ignored or disagreed with. In that soil, shame amplifies, so the voice of peace is muted and the voice of accusation is microphoned. And what grows in that heart 
is so much fear and insecurity. And some of us are trying to find in others what we already have in Jesus, wondering why peace won't grow. It's because it grows in the soil of surrender and we're expecting it to grow in the soil of pleasing people or self-justification. Maybe why the promise of peace feels so far away is because we want the peace, but we don't want the prince. We want a servant of peace. We'd prefer a peasant, a priest, somebody who could do our bidding and solve our problems and leave the soil of our heart unconfronted. Jesus loves you too much to do that. He sees you too clearly and loves you too much to do that. His peace is hidden in his rule. And so what he asks kindly, gently, is he asks for all of your life because it's over all of your life that he wants covered in all of his peace. Friend, do the grace-driven, spirit-empowered work of replacing the soil, of digging in the dirt. It's messy. It's not automatic. You need help. I hope you have a community around you who can hold you up as you do that. But it is worth it to dig around, to find more and more ground upon which Jesus' rule can stand and lay claim because it is in that ground and only in that ground that peace can grow. Steps of peace. In Philippians 4, I'll read it again. It says, the peace of God which surpasses understanding will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. Whatever's true and honorable and just and pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. We could fire off four or five practical things to do that I think are the steps of peace. Prayer, gratitude, rejoicing, what we've done this morning, what we will do as soon as I'm done preaching, singing songs, to God, all of those things are worth it. I commend them to you. Even just thinking about the goodness of God, like Philippians just said, but I want to hone in with a little bit of time we have left and show you something. It says the result of all of those steps is that the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace. The point is this. Those activities, talking to God, praying, thinking, when we orient these things in our life, the point is the climate of God's heart is peace. And when we are mindful of his presence, and when we uh, remember how close he is, we have access to the climate of his heart. We're reminded that what's going on in his heart is there is calm, and the one who holds my life is not worried, that God is not anxious. And if God knows all, controls all, and is at peace, then somehow I'm going to be okay. Somehow I'm going to be okay. And I don't have to have all that figured out, but I can trust that in the gap between what I know and what God knows and what I control and what God can control, if the climate of his heart is peace, then that's good news for me. I always think about my relationship with my dad when I talk about this. He's a godly man. He's a steady man. I trust him. Um, I often don't know what to think until I know what he thinks. And it's not that we always agree, but it's just that kind of relationship. And in my lifetime, our family has gone through our share of suffering, like most families maybe different than some in, in ways, but a lot of crisis and a lot of loss and a lot of tragedy, a lot of hospital visits, a lot of funerals, a lot of pain, a lot of calls that I wish never came. I didn't mean for that to rhyme, but <laughs> you see, there is a God. Um, there's a conversation that my dad and I have had in those times that I've come to understand for what it is. Uh, we'll call and we'll talk and I'll ask questions about whatever it is that's going on. And really, I'm um, asking him and talking to him, but what I'm really do, trying to do is I'm trying to read him 
because he's so steady and I trust him. And I want to know how he feels because based on how he feels, that's going to determine how I feel. More than the facts, more than the events, more than what went wrong, I want to know what's going on in my dad's heart. You know, he knows more. He's been around longer. He's wiser than I am, and I trust him. And so what I've decided, intuitively even, is that whatever the climate of his heart is, that's what the climate of my heart is going to be. If he's anxious, I'm going to be anxious if he's sure things are okay, then I'm sure things are okay. If he's fearful of the worst, then I'm going to be fearful of the worst. And it's small things sometimes. A couple years ago, we had plumbing problems at my house, and I called him, and I explained to him what was going on, and he asked some questions, and I answered his questions, and all of a sudden, he just lets out a big sigh. <sighs> so then I'm freaking out because I know what that means. It's going to cost a lot of money, and it costs a lot of money. He was right. And then other times, it's been... You know, my little brother has been in the hospital having another major surgery because of his, his medical history and his birth defect. And so I'll ask him, you know, Dad, what's the next steps? And what are the doctors saying? And, and, but really what I want to know is how do you feel, Dad? Are you scared? Because if you're scared, then I'm going to be scared. If you're confident, then I'm, I'm going to be confident. It happened just yesterday. I had a conversation about my mom's health. She had a really important surgery about a year ago, and she had her one-year check up this week. And so I'm asking him, you know, what did they say and how's she feeling? But really what I want to know is, Dad, what do you think? Dad, what's your read? Because I'm just going to follow wherever your read is. Is she going to be okay? Are we going to be okay? And I'm going to mirror the climate of my heart after the climate of yours. And there's been times where I expected him to be more scared than he was or more worried than he was or freaking out a bit more than he was and he hasn't. And I just assume in those moments that he knows something that I must not know. The climate of the heart of your Father in heaven is peace. Always peace. Never worry. Never anxious. Never wringing his hands. He, he knows all that's wrong and he's never freaking out. He's never afraid. He, he, he knows all and he sees all. He knows the good in your life and the bad in your life and the pain in your life and the joy in your life. And knowing all of that, when his word describes his heart, it says he's the God of peace. That's what's true about him. And he's not freaking out. And so when we pray and when we sing and when we are honest with God about how we're feeling, part of what we're doing is not simply to say, God, I want some of your peace to settle on my heart. But it's simply to say, Lord, it's enough to be reminded that you're at peace. Because you know more than I know. You control more than I can control. And so I want to get your read, God, on whatever's going on in my life and be reminded in talking to you, be reminded in reading your word that you're not freaking out. And if you're not freaking out, somehow that means I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. Surrounded by relational conflict and, and God's not worried. Grieving loss, God grieves with you, not worried. Filled with sickness, God knows your future and there is either healing now or healing then because your worst case scenario in life is a resurrected body in eternity with Jesus. Suffering in your mind with worry and despair and trust your fear and trust the climate of your heart to the climate of God's and say, God, I'm not expecting some flip to switch, but I am going to surrender my own thoughts and be comforted by the fact that my God who knows all and controls all is right now at peace. And somehow in there, what that means is I'm going to be okay. If I could summarize all of it, friend, all of it into one sentence, it's one you've heard before. God is in control. He's in control. Christ is on his throne. God's heart is at peace. And you and I are going to be okay. Let's pray towards that end.
Father, we love you. The messenger, again, God, feels pretty far from the message. So I just want to lead my brothers and sisters in a time where maybe what we could consider is we could consider the point of pain in our life right now that's most painful. Is it a worry about children? Is it a, a, a feeling enslaved by the suffering of my own mind? Is it a conflict that I don't really know the way forward in? Is it a sickness that's not really getting better? Is it just the shame I feel over how I'm doing as a Christian and how I'm doing as a parent and how I'm doing as a friend, as a human? And what if we could, God, before you, just hold whatever that is up to you and ask of you the climate of your heart towards that pain, towards that problem. You're not far from it. You're not dismissive of it. But what is true is you know everything about it and peace fills your heart. The God of peace knows about this thing in my life. Everything there is to know has not given up on me, is not despairing over my future, but holds all, including me. Friend, could you maybe even turn this moment into prayer and just confess to God in the quiet of your heart, I'm going to be okay. Maybe that's a prayer that is so disconnected from how you actually feel. You're just praying it in faith. Maybe it's something you used to pray a lot and you've gotten away from it and God's calling you to return to it. God, your heart is peace and I'm going to be okay. Here's what I'm trusting of you, God, in this moment that by your spirit you can appropriate your word in a way that is mindful of every story. I don't know the stories in the room, and maybe if I knew all the stories in the room, I would have said things differently than I did. And yet you know every story. And so where there's conviction needed, you can take conviction and you can settle it in a heart and you don't miss where there's comfort needed, you can take that comfort and find the heart in the room that's weary and needs encouragement and you can appropriate it there and you never miss God. So would you do it now? We love you. Jesus, you are the Prince of Peace. God, you keep your word. You're not a liar. Help us. We need you. Amen.